The on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Laura Villalpando. Tonight, are LA's hospitals safe? In frank and sometimes contentious discussion, a panel representing various viewpoints debates the relative safety of Los Angeles hospitals. Recent news reports have revealed high hospital error and infection rates. Health reporter Charles Ornstein talks with Dr. David Feinberg, chief executive of the UCLA hospital system. Carol Moss, a proponent of public reporting of hospital infection rates, whose 15-year-old son Niall died of a drug-resistant staph infection in 2006. And Patty Harvey, Vice President of Quality and Risk Management for Kaiser Permanente's Southern California region. A fully engaged Socolo audience caps the hour off with tough questions for the panelists. Recorded live at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Socolo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Charles Ornstein. The title of this panel is, Are LA Hospitals Safe? And in general, I think it's fair to say that the answer is yes. But, and this is a big but, uh, they're not immune from errors or serious quality of care problems. And if you just read the pages of the Times or other newspapers, um, you know this is true. And just consider these recent stories, uh, one in our paper, that there were 1,002 cases of serious medical harm disclosed by California hospitals to the State Department of Public Health from July 2007 to May of this year. 466 patients developed bed sores so severe that the dead skin formed a crater or rotted through to the muscle or bone. Another 145 patients had foreign objects, such as surgical equipment, left in their bodies. In 41 surgeries, doctors performed the wrong procedure or operated on the wrong body part or on the wrong patient. In May, the state of California fined 13 hospitals, including five in Los Angeles and Orange Counties, for placing patients at risk for serious injury or death. Two were public hospitals, Harbor UCLA Medical Center and Oliveview UCLA Medical Center. Also fined were Pomona Valley Hospital Medical Center, Garden Grove Hospital and Medical Center, and St. Joseph Hospital in Orange. All told, the State Department of Public Health has issued 39 hospital fines since October. And we certainly cannot forget the medication mix-up that happened last fall to the newborn twins of actor Dennis Quaid at Cedar sinai Medical Center. They received 1,000 times the recommended dosage of the blood thinner heparin and are okay today. In the past several years, a number of groups, including the federal government and the California Healthcare Foundation, have tried to improve the quality of patient care at hospitals by publicly reporting on their quality statistics, things like whether they take the right steps to treat heart attacks and prevent surgical infections, and whether their mortality rates from common procedures and conditions are in line with expectations. Tonight, our discussion will explore those efforts and look at the safety of local hospitals. So I thought we'd begin the conversation by opening with the question that's at the title of tonight's presentation, which is, are LA's hospitals safe? And I thought we could ask each of the panelists to give a brief answer to that question with their perspective. So why don't we start with you, Patty? I think for the most part, every day, hospitals do things in the right way, at the right time, everything right for the patient. It's those unfortunate, critical failures in systems that causes the adverse outcomes that we're seeing. Those are the few instances that occur between the many things that go right. And from a Kaiser Permanente perspective, we have taken that very seriously and continue to have activities and ongoing diligence to ensure that we've got methods and processes to drive out those failures in our systems. For example, our work on bloodstream infections. We have set a bold goal internally that we will have no bloodstream infections in any of our 11 hospitals. Now, that's below the national benchmark for infections for the number of patients that we see within our hospitals. But we feel one infection is too many. And so we do every single infection. We have the opportunity to dive deep to understand what part of that system actually failed so that we can then learn from that one individual failure so that we can take that knowledge then forth to that hospital, share it then across our other 10 hospitals, and then share it nationally as well. Okay. Dr. Feinberg? Are hospitals safe? Absolutely not. When you come to the hospital, you're sick. You have infections. There's other people there with infections. There's people taking care of you. They're human. They make errors. So it's no surprise that people get ill in the hospital. They come ill. 
And our job is to make it as safe as possible, but it's far from perfect. We are so proud of the accomplishments that we've done at UCLA Medical Center. You know, we just were ranked number three by U.S. News and World Report as the third best hospital in the country. For 18 years in a row, we've been ranked the number one hospital in the Western United States. We have Nobel Prize winners on our staff. Our nurses are magnet level, which puts us in the top 4% of hospitals in the country. We have the brightest medical students. We now have a building that's second to none. We have the most technologically advanced healing facility we think in the world. And as I tell my staff, none of that matters because what really matters is that next patient that comes in our door. That very next patient that comes in our door does not care that I had no central line infections over the last 30 days. They don't care that that guy that just left the room won the Nobel Prize or that the building is beautiful. What they care about is that the care that their family is going to receive, is it going to be safe? It's going to be something that they understand. Is it going to be delivered with compassion? And is it going to be delivered in a dignified way? And so that's our challenge every day. We step up to that challenge, as do the other facilities, every day of the year, 24 hours a day. Our staff is there on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So all that being said, the challenge is to make sure that the next patient that comes through our door gets that care. And it's very, very hard to do. It's very complex. We're actually rather small. We treat about a million patients a year in our outpatient facilities, and we treat about 80,000 in our inpatient facilities among our hospitals. We get about five by helicopter every day. But when you think about how complex medical care is, especially in an open system like ours where patients may come where we've never met them before, we have no information on them. If they come from a doctor that has an electronic medical record, we have no concept whether it interacts with ours. And when we go for the most complicated patients, which we really see as our core competency in an academic medical center, we then really have you know, the added burden of trying to get through the complexity to make sure not only to provide great care, but to make sure that it's absolutely the safest and the highest quality. It's a challenge that we face every day, and it's getting more complicated. There's tremendous pressures on us for our limited resources and beds. We need to move patients through the system. Patients now frequently have separate doctors that take care of them in the hospital versus who take care of them in the outside. There's a lot of handoffs in communication where humans are involved. Like everybody else, we make mistakes. So I think we never get to the point that we're safe. I think it's this, it's this vision that we're always going toward. We can always get safer. We can always make our care higher quality. And I really think healthcare in general over the last decade has become more transparent, much like the airline industry, and has really accepted that this is our challenge. And so I'm excited to be here and part of this discussion. Thank you. Carol. Thank you. Charlie, thanks for inviting me. really appreciate a chance to share a little bit about our son, Niall, and what we've learned since our loss. I also want to thank God for giving me the strength to share Niall's story day after day, multiple times a day. And we do this, my husband and I and all of our friends, we do this so that we can share what we never knew before this happened. We want to make sure that all of you are able to learn from what we've learned in in the last 820 days. My experience is based on the fact that I'm a mother of a son who died in a, in a war I never knew existed, the war of hospital-acquired infections. And none of us deserve to be kept in the dark ever. All of us deserve to have the ability to be prepared to get treatment for our family. We began an organization called Niles Project just months after Nile died. And we began this because we, we learned that over 2 million people go into hospitals each year in, in the United States of America and get preventable infections. Over 100,000 of those people go into hospitals each year in America and get infections and die. And this is the only thing that we can share is that, thank God, We've learned that many of these infections are preventable, and they're doing it in other states, and we need it here in California. Our organization, Niles Project, spends days in all different areas talking with people. We talk with victims like Alicia Cole, who's here today, who shared her story, who's a walking miracle. 
She was quoted in the LA Times this weekend, and they shared a story of, of her battle. She's not unlike many others that this happens to. You go in, you plan to be in for a couple of days, you think you're going to spend about $40,000, and you end up staying in the hospital for two months fighting for your life, and the hospitals get paid over a million dollars. This is not unusual. I am also a member of the governor-appointed hospital-acquired infection board that meets with experts, experts in epidemiology, experts that represent the hospitals that they work for. And I am the only one that really is there specifically to support all of the 36 million of us Californians that need health care. I have learned so much just by being a part of this committee I have been disappointed, and I've been pleasantly surprised. And for more than anything, I've learned that, unfortunately, it takes the death of someone in the family or the knowledge of someone personal on this committee to begin to make some positive change. I also support, and Niles Project works very closely with legislative leaders, Senator Elaine Alquest. She's a leader in many ways. She is fighting for all of us. And we are focused on SB 1058. We need your support. Why don't you explain what, what you're pushing for and why, why you're pushing for it? Okay, today, the legislation that we have in place through our governor, SB 739, that was approved, only report, it's, you know, many times when people say, Governor, we need to have public reporting like the 22 other states that have it. His response is, well, we have public reporting. And I have a committee that works on this. All that we are required to do today is to publicly report processes that are being implemented, which is good. We need to have new processes, which are being implemented at UCLA and other hospitals. But what we want to know as consumers is, number one, we want to see a report that we can go online and we can see what hospitals are doing a great job in infection prevention. We want to see outcomes reported to the public, and that's in the legislation, number one. Number two, we want preventative measures like screening, like they do at the VA hospitals. Our federal government has determined that in order to prevent MRSA and other hospital-acquired infections, we need to test people before they come in. So we simply want to have what the federal government says is the right thing for our veterans. We want it for California, and that's in the legislation. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Programming is supported by KCET-TV, the only Southern California public television channel where you can find Tavis Smiley, Hugh Hauser, Frontline, and all the public television programs you love. The Republican National Convention gets underway Monday, Labor Day in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Pat Morrison will be there to cover every day of the proceedings. I'm Larry Mantle. Monday on Labor Day, we're off, but talk of the nation from National Public Radio will follow Pat's morning coverage and fill you in on more of the latest developments from St. Paul. It's Talk of the Nation in lieu of air talk Monday on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome to the second week of KPCC's convention coverage. I'm at the Republican Convention in St. Paul, bringing you the voices of GOP officials and delegates, including an Orange County teenager, the youngest delegate at the convention. I'm Pat Morrison. We'll find out whether John McCain even plans to campaign in California. It's a state that hasn't voted Republican since the first George Bush. The Republican Playbook gets going here Monday at 10 a.m. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand. Coming up, practicing... From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. 
If it's time to get rid of that old gas guzzler, KPCC can help. When you donate your used car, truck, or boat to KPCC, you're also supporting the news you trust. And you know, you'll get great mileage out of your listening, too. Donate your vehicle today at kpcc.org. And thanks. I'm Laura Villalpando. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to a discussion on the relative safety of LA's hospitals. Health reporter Charles Ornstein talks with Dr. David Feinberg, chief executive of the UCLA hospital system, Carol Moss, a proponent of public reporting of hospital infection rates, whose 15-year-old son, Niall, died of a drug-resistant staph infection in 2006, and Patty Harvey, Vice President of Quality and Risk Management for Kaiser Permanente's Southern California region. Patty and Dr. Feinberg, what is your opinion about reporting of hospital infections and also mandatory sort of screening steps to prevent them from taking place at hospitals? For Kaiser Permanente, we have been very transparent and will continue to be very transparent in, in reporting, just as Carol has outlined, the process measures that are now publicly reported. We have taken some additional steps to report that information with inside our hospitals, and we also support Senator Alquist and really applaud the interaction that we have had in the development of the bill. We anticipate the partnership as this bill comes up for vote. We also were active supporters in Senate Bill 739, which established the committee that, that Carol was referring to. And we have two of our infection control experts that sit on that panel so that we can bring forth a balanced opportunity for hospitals not only to report their infections, but also so that consumers and patients that we see day in and day out have the ability to understand and acknowledge what that means so that they can be armed with information, so that they can be armed when they come in the hospital to ask their appropriate questions of their provider before we get there. We have, and I'll share an example with you of something that we've learned just through this process. One of our medical centers, and, and medical center equals hospital in Kaiser speak, had a patient and her family in our ICU. Very unfortunate cancer patient early in her life. Father and two kids came in daily in the ICU with her. Um, our staff bonded with her. This patient acquired a hospital infection. And ultimately, though she did not pass away of that infection, she passed away of cancer. It was a loss for our medical center. It was a loss for that ICU. Through that bonding process with that family, that family now is our family. And we use the husband of this patient on our patient advisory council. So when we have questions about what can we do better, what can we do to help the situation, to make it more patient-friendly, we go to this person because he's not only our go-to person for how to make it better, he then also represents me and my mom and my children who are actually patients who receive care within our system. Dr. Feinberg? Yeah, I would agree that I think transparency is fantastic. Better than that is just putting the number up. And you you mean, especially where I, in my world, when I put the number up of the rates in this unit versus that unit, the doctors at UCLA, they're, they're just used to getting A's, so they love to fight to get their number better. That's, that's a, it's a easy, just if you measure it, they get better. A lot of it, though, is changing human behavior. One of the greatest ways to prevent infection is good old-fashioned hand washing. If your hands have actually soil on them, you should wash them for 15 seconds in warm water with soap. If they're not soiled, the simple Purell or the alcohol swab, the alcohol gel does that. If you ask doctors and nurses how often do you wash your hands using those methods, they'll tell you they do it all the time. We measured it by having spies throughout our hospital. So there's a lot of UCLA undergraduates that want to work in a hospital so they can put it on their application for medical school. So we have them go through the hospital, and we found that our nurses were actually around the 80 to 90 percent, and our residents and attending physicians that swore to us they were at 100 percent were closer to around 48 percent. Now everybody's over 95 percent, some are at 100 percent, because we gave them the data. So it's, it's not a cheap fix, because it required a lot of workforce. It was actually volunteer But it just shows you that some of the simple things can be extremely beneficial. 
obviously the loss of a child or a worsening of an illness is absolutely the worst thing possible when it's caused by the very people and the institution that are supposed to help you. And not to minimize that, the other thing about these infections, if we prevent them, there's a huge, huge cost savings as far as resources go. It's a very, very expensive procedure to treat patients longer. And despite your claim of you were there for a few days and you thought you'd get a $40,000 bill and instead you got a million-dollar bill, which I'm sure we do charge and we never collect, the, <laughs> the, the reality is that the hospitals in California, about 50% of them are on the verge of bankruptcy. And in West Los Angeles, we've seen multiple hospitals closing, and now we're going to start to see that throughout the system. So it's not like the hospitals are getting rich. And many of these systems and improvements beyond just infection control, but wrong site surgery, near misses, other places where we really mess up are expensive to fix because they require sophisticated information systems, people reporting, public reporting, you know, regulators who want to see us. We have armies of people that are doing this where really, assuming we really took care of our business, we could put those resources back to the bedside. So it's a complicated, complicated system, but sometimes the fixes are very simple, and I'm completely not only in favor of reporting everything publicly, but internally letting people know how they're doing. We had a round of, a, of, of applause about a week ago when our neurointensive care unit reported they had gone two months with no central line infections at all, which was the best that they ever had. Very similar to when you go to the construction site and they say, you know, 42 days on the job and nobody's been hurt. We've now incorporated that into the hospital in that same way, and it can be very, very effective. And we're completely committed, and, and I, I think we're speaking on behalf of all hospitals because the industry has kind of gone that direction, and we're thrilled to be part of that. Now, you both have mentioned that you both take sort of the results and integrate them and improve based on the results. And I understand that in theory, but Patty, this is directed to you. I mean, Kaiser hospitals have been early adopters in terms of participating in quality efforts. And and really, they've participated in voluntary efforts before. It was mandatory. They really are, have taken part in this. But yet, if you look at some of the more recent scorecards, even though they've had a long history of participating, in, in, in some cases, they haven't done as well. And so, you know, the most recent report card from Statewide Health Planning and Development found that eight Kaiser hospitals were listed as having higher mortality rates for community-acquired pneumonia than peers around the state, and, and no Kaiser hospitals had better than expected rates. And similarly, when the federal government unveiled its report about patient satisfaction in hospitals, many local Kaiser hospitals had you know lower satisfaction scores than their peers. So if you're learning from the data, why is it that it seems that there's some sort of a paradox here? So could you address that? We knew we had to do some targeted efforts because our members were saying, you promised through your your agreement with us as a member that you will deliver safe, effective quality care in a place that we we want it at a time that we need it. And you're not delivering on what you promised us. So our targeted work on service, in the, especially in the hospital, where we have nurses employing things like transforming care at the bedside, where they're doing a, a project called Nurse Knowledge Exchange, where they stand at the bedside and actually do handoffs. Because David uh, talked a bit a minute ago about the importance of communication and handoffs, and that's what our satisfaction scores were telling us. You have an issue with handoffs. You need to focus on that. So targeted activities with the nurses at the patient bedside, and then engaging our patients in that conversation. Every day, our executive leaders are rounding and visiting with our patients. We call it executive walk-arounds. Not only are they talking about what's going right, they're talking about what's going not so right. And how can we as leaders within these hospitals fix those situations? So listening to what our patients are telling us and then acting upon it. Though our progress is slow, there is directionally correct progress. And I'm happy to tell you that just as we were talking earlier, one of our hospitals, a low performer, has been having targeted activities in their, in their patient satisfaction work, recently moved into a new medical center, and now is at the top of the heap. And Dr. Feinberg, I'm wondering, you know, your system is smaller than Kaiser's, but yet UCLA Medical Center seems to participate in most quality efforts, but Santa Monica UCLA hasn't participated as in the voluntary effort that's run by the California Healthcare Foundation, the Cal Hospital Compare. Is there something different between the hospitals where one would want to participate and one wouldn't? 
No, uh, probably the opposite. I think that our Santa Monica hospital is more engaged actually around infection control than the Westwood hospital. The, the funny, we, we purchased Santa Monica hospital, I believe, in 1994. We're just now welcome on campus. So it's it's been a slow integration. So I think it's more the politics of of buying it. And I'm I'm facetious. They've been nice to us for about a year. The, the, uh, so so you know it's it's been that. And and we're we're now actually I think uh, putting out a new director of quality management that will be over the whole system. It's that's just bureaucracy. We really want it as a system wide to participate at the same level. And you had indicated to me earlier that you are going to go a step beyond that and begin reporting data about hospital infections that aren't required or even collected. Absolutely. You know, the, the way that I came to this was I was fortunate enough to offer this opportunity to run the UCLA hospitals, not the Harbor and Sepulveda that you mentioned. Uh, those are our teaching affiliates. We don't run those hospitals. Those are run, I think, very well, actually, by the county system about a year ago. And prior to that, I'd been running the psychiatric hospital. And the psychiatric hospital is right in the same complex as the medical center we used to be. We've all moved up two weeks ago. You know, terrible building, elevators that don't work, no private bathrooms. And in psychiatry, we're taking 40% of our patients involuntarily. They're suicidal or homicidal. And we would admit them to the hospital, and 90% of them would refer us to a friend to discharge. So that was really, to me, staff engaging with patients, in this case, patients that had serious mental illness, in a way that you really saw people hugging the nurses as they left. So I got this new job. I walked down the hall to the medical center, and I learned that we perform absolute miracles. We do incredible things around transplants. We literally are saving people's lives. I started bringing handkerchief to work because I would cry when I would come in the room and meet with patients. The other thing that I learned is that we were doing a a terrible job as far as patient satisfaction. So we're saving people's lives, but one out of three patients would not refer us to a friend. How come? Because the food wasn't hot, the drapes didn't work, the nurse was rude, I don't know who my doctor was. And I said, we need to fix that. Everybody said, you're crazy, it'll never fix, we're a teaching hospital. And it'll only get better when we move into that fancy billion-dollar pay design hospital. I said, it's going to get worse because we're going to have to figure out how to work in that building. We need to fix this now and move over with our good habits. The emergency room in February of 07, the one you enter from LeConte under that terrible parking structure, was fourth percentile in the country for patient satisfaction. Fourth percentile meaning you'd have to go far around the country to find an emergency room that was worse. Um, before the move, uh, about a month ago, it hit 99th percentile. So that's in the old building. Now, as you mentioned, once you get into a new building, there's a great effect. We're going to be 99th percentile and everything. But we hit 99th percentile in the old building. And so how did we do it? Same staff, same old place. It was people getting together, working on communication. They came up with their own slogan, which was, it's about time. Because when you come into the ER, it was, it's about time. It was about time that we fixed things down there. We've moved our entire hospital system, patient satisfaction. And what I said about the transparency was, I, I had to go through five internal websites to find our patient satisfaction score. And they were password protected. And, and I said... Why not just put it out for the whole world to see? In the world that I live in, in West Los Angeles, everybody knows that if you want to be treated with respect and dignity, you go to St. John's or you go to Cedars. I said, so what's the big deal? If we put our number out, everybody knows that's how we treat people at this hospital. It's not going to be, we shouldn't be ashamed that our emergency room is fourth in, in the country. It is fourth in the country. And if you asked our neighbors, they would tell you just that. So I'm absolutely believing that the numbers just reflect what your community already knows about you. And we exist so that our community trusts us. That to me, is our most important in our world our community is not only southern california but united states because we export knowledge and and training but if they don't trust us regardless of what happens in healthcare reform we won't exist so we must have the trust of our community and of course we need to put the numbers out but more importantly we have to hit that 99th percentile when you come in the er and our santa monica er now has it our entire system has gone up dramatically the putting the numbers out the transparency is a part of it to me a bigger part of it 
is really walking the walk, that making sure whatever we can do with the resources that we have at this point, we hit the mark. We're the only hospital now in California that has every single staff member in uniform. It took us three years to get done. California Nurses Association, a bunch of nurses deciding on a uniform. Oh, my God, three years to do it. But it was a patient safety initiative. You're in the hospital. You see somebody in navy blue, you know that they're a UCLA RN. If they're in the olive green, they're a care partner. If they have the gray shirt on, they're a ward secretary. With And, and, and when you talk about 19 people coming in your room per hour during peak hours in the hospital, visual cues can be very important. So there's many things that can be done. And and transparency is part of it, but to me it goes much deeper than that. It's really a commitment to our community that we're there for you and we're going to do what we said, that we're going to live up to our brochure. So to me, transparency, the numbers are just a, a piece of that. This is Sokalo. Check out our events around town. On Wednesday, September 3rd, take part as Sokalo presents... L.A. versus Seattle. Whose Pacific Rim is it? Sokolo has gathered together a distinguished panel that includes UCLA political scientist Steve Erie, David Olson of the University of Washington, and Thomas O'Brien from the Center for International Trade and Transportation at Cal State Long Beach to discuss these two urban giants' approach toward Asia. They'll ask which city is better poised to take advantage of globalization in the Asian century. Are the teachers' unions too powerful, or are they not powerful enough? On Wednesday, September 9th, Joe Matthews, Irvine Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation, moderates a panel including Joshua Peshtot, a Vice President of United Teachers Los Angeles, Mickey Sichaki, a board member of the California Teachers Association, the largest teachers' union in the country, David Tukovsky, a former school board member in LAUSD, who has fought with and against big teachers' unions, and Caprice Young, another former LAUSD board member and now CEO of the California Charter School Association. Finally, on Wednesday, September 10th, Jonathan Gold, Pulitzer Prize-winning food critic for LA Weekly, chews on whether there is such a thing as LA cuisine with a panel of prominent local chefs. Admission to these and all Socolo events is free, but reservations are recommended. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment to our discussion on the relative safety of L.A.'s hospitals. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is made possible by the W.M. Keck Foundation, supporting community-based organizations in Southern California and advancements in science, medical research, and higher education nationwide. The Republican National Convention gets underway Monday, Labor Day, in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Pat Morrison will be there to cover every day of the proceedings. I'm Larry Mantle. Monday on Labor Day, we're off, but talk of the nation from National Public Radio will follow Pat's morning coverage and fill you in on more of the latest developments from St. Paul. It's Talk of the Nation in lieu of air talk Monday on 89.3 KPCC. A law in India protects women from domestic abuse. Supporters say the law is desperately needed. Critics say the law is often abused to punish innocent men and their extended families. Parents of the groom who have been named in such cases have even committed suicide because of the ignominy they had to suffer uh, in the society. I'm Marco Werman. That story, next time on The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Every afternoon on All Things Considered, we're traveling the globe to get you the story. Which means from west to east and the south, but also for the first time in the north. On the north-south conflict. The street is what's east and west is all ash. East and north to find affordable homes. Across the street or around the world, All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on 89.3 
KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. I'm Laura Villalpando. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to a discussion on the relative safety of L.A.'s hospitals. Health reporter Charles Ornstein talks with Dr. David Feinberg, chief executive of the UCLA hospital system, Carol Moss, a proponent of public reporting of hospital infection rates, whose 15-year-old son Niall died of a drug-resistant staph infection in 2006, and Patty Harvey, vice president of quality and risk management for Kaiser Permanente Southern California region. Carol, do you feel that hospitals respond to patient concerns and needs? I would say from the experience that I have today, most of the people that I'm working with are people that are suffering from infections. So I can tell you my broad base of contact right now, they're not happy. It's interesting. I'd like to hear about where you think your money is going if it's not going to your hospital when these insurance companies are writing million-dollar checks. So we should probably get back to that because um, that's a separate channel. That's a whole. I mean, that's real interesting to think if it's not going to you and the insurance company is writing you a check. I'd be real interested to find out where that's going and who's paying for that building. So to back to your question, Charlie, I can tell you that the people that are suffering today that continue to suffer. Each and every one of them have been treated so disrespectfully that in California, in L.A. areas, and the reason that they're so disappointed in the care is not only because today they're left with infections that will be in their bodies for a lifetime. It's the treatment that they're receiving after the fact. Many of their medical records are not containing all of the records that were there. Many of the responses that they're getting are not helpful to them. And so just based on what we're hearing today, people that we take, that I take to the advisory committee, they asked me to bring people who are survivors or victims. I can tell you today that they are suffering and it continues. It is life changing and there's no excuse for this. And the attitude in California is very different from the attitude in Virginia. I know that the care that Niall received, my son, was inadequate at one of the best hospitals. I've had many people review his medical records. Niall died within 48 hours of the first signs of the flu. He was seen by a doctor on a Saturday at about noon. Had I known that there was an epidemic of MRSA that looks like pneumonia, that looks like sepsis, that looks like many things, it looks like the flu, I would have insisted that Niall would be tested with a rapid test for MRSA that was available in 2006. The people in Mission Hospital had never heard of a rapid test in 2006. The challenge is this. California doctors and hospitals and people have not been given the true story of the epidemics of not only MRSA but other hospital-acquired infections. They haven't been given the true size of it, and therefore they also haven't been given the fact that on the East Coast, in Virginia and in D.C. and in the Midwest, There are hospitals that have eradicated hospital-acquired infections for decades. There are websites like IHI.com, Institute for Healthcare Improvement, that are wonderful to go on because there are nurses that learn things that on their own they say, this time last year we had this many bloodstream infections. It looks like we're helping to save lives because we're implementing new changes on our own. The problem here in California is that we haven't been told We've been in the dark, and same with the doctors. And they also haven't been, sh- they haven't been told about the incredible preventative measures that people are getting on the East Coast. And 
the, the challenge is that they're not even being told about the new preventative techniques that are out there. I can share with you a couple things as it relates to people that we talk to. We do many events like uh, Parenting Magazine each year hosts a youth fair. So we go set up a booth. We provide preventative measures. We talk with the public. And it was the first time that I realized the numbers of 2 million people going into hospitals each year getting infections. The first time my sister and I, Sharon, in the audience realized, oh, my gosh, this number is real because so many people walked up to us and said, I have MRSA right now. I had MRSA. My mom died of MRSA. I mean, this is the first day. There's about 30,000 people that attend a three-day event. We started just going there to make people aware that this is out there, to talk to parents, that when they heard people were dying in schools, that they needed to understand it wasn't, it wasn't the schools. You know, it's good to clean the schools, but it's people are walking in with bacteria on them, and they are spreading things to other students. So we share preventative measures for school kids in schools. We go to, we go to high schools, and we talk to health classes. The biggest problem here in California is that our leaders have hidden the size of the problem and have hidden the solutions from all of us. So we have not been able to be prepared. I'd like to give everybody one minute to summarize, you know, what should patients who are going in the hospital ask or do to protect themselves? So if we can keep it to a minute and then we'll, we'll have time for questions. Patients should first talk to their physician, understand what the the reason for them going into the hospital is. They should also, before the time to go into the hospital, is arm yourselves with information. At Kaiser Permanente, we arm our our members and our patients with lots of information, um, primarily from our website, but also from the the partnership between the hospital, their insurance provider, and and their physicians. So we encourage dialogue at every opportunity and interaction at every opportunity, because that's what's going to meet the individual needs as they go into the healthcare system. Okay. Well, I'd say try to avoid the hospital. Try to stay healthy. Um, it's not a good place to be. If you do come to the hospital, I would suggest that you bring all your medications with you. I would suggest that you bring somebody with you that will be with you at all times. Despite our barcodes and all kinds of systems, now that we're in a new building and everyone has a private room, we should have much, much fewer medication errors, but that can still happen. And I would, if you're awake and conscious, I would make sure that everybody who walks in the room washes their hands. So I would say to your health care, excuse me, you didn't wash your hands. A lot of times they wash their hands outside. What we did in the new building was build the sinks and the Purell in the room so you would actually see them washing their hands. And I also wouldn't get frustrated when we ask you 500 times, and are you Mrs. Smith? Is that your name? And what's your birth date? That's part of our checking system to make sure we don't make errors. You need to be a a part of this. No question we want to partner with you in your health care, and we want to get you out of the hospital as soon as possible. So all that being said, I wish everybody the best of health. Carol? Hi, number one, I would recommend that everyone that's about to go into the hospital request a MRSA test before you go in and request a MRSA test before you leave. If they say no, which in most cases they will, demand it. And if you can't get one, then go to a doctor that will give you a MRSA test before you go to the hospital and one before you leave. Number two, I would make sure if you're having surgery that you remind your doctor that you would like to have an antibiotic to prevent infections before you go into the surgery. I would make sure that each and every one of you bathe with chlorhexidine soap three days or two days before your surgery because this way you're, you're washing off all the bacteria, good and bad. Today, if you cut yourself and you have bacteria on you, you can actually infect yourself. So since they're not doing it in hospitals, they're not bathing people in hospitals before you get in your bed like they used to do in the old days, then you need to take this on for yourself. I would also ask that you urge them to not shave the surgical site, that you would like them to use clippers. You would ask them to make sure you're kept warm with booties and a hat and an extra blanket. Top epidemiologists have proven 15 steps to prevent infections in hospitals and healthcare, and you can find that on our website at www.nilesproject.com. And I would just add, you know, for one thing from my perspective that I tell people a lot is don't be afraid to ask questions. That You should ask your doctor what his success rate is for a given surgery. And if they won't answer the question, go to a different doctor because no doctor should, at least this is my opinion, if a doctor can't at least competently explain to you why they're unwilling to share that data with you then or is uncomfortable with you questioning, uh, I mean, that's, that goes to the patient-doctor relationship, and it should be a collaboration, and you should feel free to ask whatever questions you have. You've been listening to a discussion on the relative safety of L.A.'s hospitals. Health reporter Charles Ornstein spoke with Dr. David Feinberg, chief executive of the UCLA hospital system, Carol Moss, 
a proponent of public reporting of hospital infection rates, whose 15-year-old son Niall died of a drug-resistant staph infection in 2006, and Patty Harvey, vice president of quality and risk management for Kaiser Permanente's Southern California region. Now we turn it over to the Socolow audience. My name is Olivia Weber, and I'd like to ask about this handoff process, two nurses speaking to each other in the patient's presence. What about the handoff from weekdays to weekends? Many years ago, I had surgery for my feet, and one foot became infected, and I realized it on a Friday. And if I hadn't been very assertive, it might not have been until Monday that my supposed regular doctor would have been aware of it because I was being told he wasn't there, but I wasn't being told he won't be back till Monday. And I realized it for myself and had to make myself very assertive. So what do you do for weekends? We have learned from the times that we've investigated the the misadventures or the missed opportunities or even the near misses, that communication has been one of the key drivers of the system failure. So we look for opportunities to improve that communication. We have a technical term. We call it human factors. We adopted this from the aviation industry, but it really takes into the play of the relationship between the care provider and the patient. And you are absolutely right. The handoff between nurse to nurse at change of shift is equally important to the handoff between nurse on night, evening, and days, physician to physician, housekeeper to housekeeper, so that we ensure that continuity of care is there. The process of communication within the hospital is something that's a 24-7, 365-day-a-year process. You take into the dynamics of the the different providers and the different services and the different interactions and, and work that's going on, and we have learned through looking at these very cases, just like you're talking about, that that's where the issue is. Processes, education to our providers. We actually teach our nurses and our physicians how to do these handoffs. We do simulation. For something like you were describing, I'm going to use a scenario that might be slightly different, but it'll give you an idea. For example, in our labor and delivery areas, we've learned by looking at our errors, especially if a mom has an emergency C-section, how quick it takes to get that baby delivered. The communication and the handoffs in that time of emergency is critical. And the way that you learn is actually practice. You know, you, you you can teach and you can put things on the board, but until you practice it, it's not in your heart. So by when you use a simulation, and we actually have a a mannequin that simulates labor with the assistance of a computer, and she actually delivers this baby. And through the simulation of the computer, and we film this so that the obstetrician, the nurses, the respiratory therapist, and the anesthesiologist can all look at each other and learn from that handoff in communication and ensure that their processes to get that baby out in less than five minutes occurs because that's the goal. And there are many handoffs in that process. And the way that you, you fix those handoffs is making sure that you've got the practice and the procedure down so that the communication is intrinsic. And then you also learn that there are certain messages and ways to do that communication, not only with you, the patient, but between providers. And that handoff is critical. Can I just add quickly, because I think Patty is, is exactly right. We're, we're looking at those same things about how we communicate, because 90% of our errors are around people talking to people. Uh, in our, our operating rooms, you know, if somebody's going to operate on the wrong site, nobody would question the surgeon, because the culture is such as you don't speak up if you're the med student way in the back. The, the industry that's really done much, much better than us is the airline industry, who the pilots agree we all get to the crash site at the same time. So if you see a wing on fire, let me know. So, um, we've brought in the aviation industry into our ORs. Every one of our OR doctors, nurses have gone through a training where before an operation starts, the surgeon introduces himself because sometimes, you know, it's different people. We have 10,000 employees and says, you know, we're all going to get there together. Everybody has an obligation to speak up. Please, you know, speak up if you think we're making a mistake, those kinds of things. And it's been shown now in operating rooms to really decrease errors. It's about communication. The culture of medicine was really one based on orders and not on a multidisciplinary team. That's changing, and that is a huge improvement for safety and patients, and patients are part of the team. Just a quick question. It's interesting that you continue to use aviation as a measuring stick. Today, with 100,000 people dying of hospital-acquired infections, it's equal to a plane crash a day. My name is Anne-Marie Jones. I was in a hospital for three days before I was sent to a skilled nursing facility to recover from a back injury. I spent the next three weeks on IV antibiotics, strong antibiotics to fight an infection. Where I got it, I don't know. With so many people being sent out of acute care hospitals into nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities to recover from surgeries or whatever, 
my observation is they're not very good in terms of quality. In fact, the one I was in was pretty bad. What is being done to ensure that people are not going to be getting infections in the skilled nursing facilities? Hey, Patty, just real quick. If you're not screening patients before they leave, how are you protecting the patients in these skilled nursing facilities if they're being admitted and you don't know if they're carrying any kind of infections from the hospital? Since 85% of these infections are coming out of healthcare, how are you protecting those people? And, you know, Carol, we have, we've, with Kaiser, when you leave our hospitals, there are certain um, procedures and tests that are always done at the time of discharge. We arm our patients with information. We arm our patients with, with knowledge as they move from one care setting to another. When we discharge a patient into a skilled nursing facility from our ICUs, we are doing that screening because we have the obligation to work with those skilled nursing facilities. And actually, we have the obligation to our members to make sure that we're discharging them in the best possible health. Um, if you have a, a pneumonia associated associated with a ventilator in one of our hospitals, we're always testing to see if that's a MRSA-associated infection. If you have any bloodstream infection, we are testing to see if that bloodstream infection is related to MRSA and then treating it accordingly. So if you're not screening before they leave for MRSA, which you just said, or are you? We are screening our ICU discharges to skilled nursing facilities. Just ICU. That's it. Since we know that MRSA, you can get MRSA throughout your hospital. And we appreciate the fact you can get MRSA throughout your hospital as well as, you know, the opportunity to gain infection um, is a community opportunity. So we want to ensure that our patients, when they leave our ICU, transferred to a skilled nursing facility, that we have done the appropriate care for those patients. This is why we need this legislation, because obviously hospitals will not do this on their own. It is critical that we, we the people of California, demand safety. If people leave hospitals and are not tested for infections, they're spreading it into the communities, they're spreading it to all of us. You've just heard a discussion on the relative safety of LA's hospitals. Health reporter Charles Ornstein spoke with Dr. David Feinberg, chief executive of the UCLA hospital system, Carol Moss, a proponent of public reporting of hospital infection rates, whose 15-year-old son Niall died of a drug-resistant staph infection in 2006, and Patty Harvey, Vice President of Quality and Risk Management for Kaiser Permanente Southern California region. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Laura Villalpando. Socalo is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stenzel. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. Next time on Day to Day, Philip Seiler spent more than 20 years in prison. Support for this public radio podcast comes from Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals, institutions, and advisors reach their long-term financial goals. 1-888-VANGUARD.